0: Shut up, crime! Welcome to Off the Film Path. Here we review and discuss movies that, for better or for worse, are less known to the general public. Today we are discussing
1: 2010's Super. I'm Kyle. And I'm Sophia.
0: we've
2: brought back a guest
1: i'm anthony and i'm very happy to be back thanks for having me back on the show y'all
2: hey anthony great to see you again y'all too okay this was a thing so i was the only person of the three of us who had not seen this movie before seeing this movie (sighs) Um, okay (laughs) let's get some naming conventions Out of the way up top, this movie includes pre-transition Elliot Page. We will not be using Elliot's previous name. We'll be referring to him as Elliot and just this was before he transitioned.
0: Possibly the character
2: with she, her, but... I think we could probably do that. I don't remember the character's name, though. Character's name is Libby. Libby, that's right. Yeah. Okay, Libby can be she, her, but we will refer to Elliot Page as he, him.
0: Hey, did you know that James Gunn made a superhero movie before
2: Guardians of the Galaxy? Now you do. <sighs> okay, so I just, <laughs> I want to be, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about my interpersonal dynamic with Kyle, because he told me that this movie, here's exactly how he pitched it to me. I'm not making this up. He goes, oh yeah, it has Rain Wilson and Elliot Page. And I was like, oh. Two funny people I enjoy. Fuck you, Kyle.
1: <laughs> I mean, those are factual statements that Kyle said about the it's, movie. Yeah,
2: no, but th- tell me that I was not a material misrepresentation. You are correct.
0: There were three different days this past week when I meant to message you. <laughs> hey, here's some caveats.
2: You should have.
0: I should have. Somehow, I. you know what it was? You know what made me forget
2: to do that? Thanksgiving? No, Henry Kissinger dying. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which, well, let's, just, let's just take a moment and live in that. Huh. <sighs> All right, welcome back to reality. It sucks here. Let's talk about a movie whose reality sucks even worse.
1: Wait, Sophia, I have another question for you. Yes? Not counting the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, had you seen any other James Gunn movies before this that were not Marvel or DC?
2: You know, I am so aggressively against the idea of auteur theory that I do not keep track of directors.
1: What? Had you seen, like, Slither, perhaps?
2: No, I skipped that one. I'm not a huge fan of horror. Did you see the live-action Scooby-Doo movies? I attempt to avoid things that were prominent in my childhood.
1: Yeah, I only say that because I had seen Slither before and super which I saw at the time it came out because I was also a fan of Rain Wilson's work and a fan of Elliot Page and had only known James Gunn from Slither. I knew he had done some trauma movies, which I hadn't seen. And I had just been hearing about this movie a lot at the time as this indie take on superhero stuff. So it was my second James Gunn movie. And I just remember thinking when Disney hired him to do Guardians, I was surprised they hired him for anything because I was wondering if they had seen this movie. (laughs) Because if you've seen Slither at least before... I think that was kind of his first, I don't want to say mainstream, but maybe Hollywood movie, kind of first big budget movie, maybe. But it kind of put the idea in my head that, okay, this guy has a unique style. He definitely loves things that are gross. He he loves things that are off the path. He kind of likes to get a reaction out of people. And, you know, I I kind of have an an idea at least of what kind of a storyteller he was, but it still didn't prepare me for what this movie was. So that's why I was curious if you had seen any of his other stuff.
2: So apparently he's got an uncredited role in 13 Ghosts, which I have seen. And he was a screenplay writer on Dawn of the Dead, which I have seen. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I have seen a couple of movies that he's been involved with. But yeah, no, this is chronologically the first one that was like him all over that I've seen.
0: Okay. Also, if you only know James Gunn from Guardians of the Galaxy, you can still probably tell that he made this movie. Because of two actors, three actors who are in this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, fuck, that's fair. Sean Gunn, his brother. Of course. Michael yep. Rooker. Yep. yep. Nathan Fillion.
2: Yes. Nathan Fillion. <laughs>
1: yeah. Also, I, I had this, I've got that weird thing where I noticed that the guy in this movie who is a police officer plays Star-Lord's father in the first Guardians movie. Oh, okay. okay. Only because I've seen the Guardians, the first Guardians a million times and i recognize recognized that actor hmm But yeah, he, he does like to use a lot of the same actors.
0: Nathan Fillion was in the first Guardians, right, as a voice.
1: Yeah, Nathan Fillion usually has like at least a cameo role in like most of James Gunn's projects. He pops up somewhere. Like, he just always has him in there, at least briefly, for, for something. He's got to be shared by Joss Whedon. Well,
2: I mean, it's of late become unpopular to be associated with Joss Whedon. So,
0: before we get into the story, some big warnings. Mm-hmm. This movie is extremely violent and has a lot of bigoted language that we don't have to talk about that graphically here. This movie also has a number of rape scenes that unfortunately we will have to address in this podcast talking about it.
2: So tell you what, Kyle, get out your soundboard and let's put a big siren and we'll we'll have that play just before a discussion of sexual assault. That said, let's get into it. Uh, So we open this movie with our main character, not Dwight.
0: His name's Frank.
2: His name's Frank. And he is recalling the two greatest moments of his life. Marrying his wife. Sarah, played by Liv Tyler. Delightful. We love Liv Tyler. Yes. So Sarah, played by Liv Tyler. And then assisting a police officer in catching a pickpocketer or purse snatcher on foot. But it wasn't that much of an assist. It was, hey, he went into that bodega, officer. Thanks a bunch, guy. Anyway, he dwells on these two things to an unhealthy extent. Such that he draws them in crayon and sticks them up
0: on his wall so that he can always start the day positively, which is kind of a nice sentiment.
2: Yeah. So Sarah is critical. And instead of making a thing of it, Frank just tries to fix the problem with the pictures, which is that the hands were a little bit out of proportion. Turns out Sarah's criticism was not really artistic so much as sick of Frank. And we kind of learn why in some flashbacks. Or no. Okay. So it's a little confusing. This is important. The progression of this is very, very disorienting. Yeah. Yeah. So Frank comes home one day and Sarah's gone. Then we get flashbacks because this doesn't seem to surprise Frank very much. We flash back to Sarah at an NA meeting because she was a individual drug user. And then we get another flashback of her having a little smoke circle in the living room when Frank comes home. So the implication is that she's fallen off the wagon and then like took all of her shit and left.
1: Yeah, because isn't there a flashback when he first meets her that she asks for a ride to her meeting? Oh, that's right, yes. That is later. Right.
0: And then also somewhere in this opening thing, Frank is cooking up breakfast, and he's visited by a guy named Jacques.
2: This is Kevin Bacon. Kevin fucking Bacon is in this movie.
1: Kevin Bacon in this movie, which reminded me again that Kevin Bacon also works again later with James Gunn in the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special.
2: Anthony, you had mentioned that you had some information about who was supposed to be the Kevin Bacon in this Kevin Bacon vehicle.
1: Yeah. So originally, <laughs> I did love, I love all everything about that. That was just great. Originally, the role of Jacques was supposed to be played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, God. <laughs> But let me tell you how close. Up until a week before shooting, that was who was locked in. James Gunn said the guy was kind of a wall. I couldn't risk that personality type on the movie. Kevin Bacon stepped in as a last-minute replacement. I don't know if a
2: Jean-Claude Van Damme in the role of Jacques would make this a substantially better or worse movie.
1: It changes everything about that character completely.
2: Well, I can say
0: for sure that Jacques wouldn't need to use a gun in that case. He's got his damn legs
2: (laughs) registered as deadly weapons. (laughs) Oh, God. But Jacques is a different kind of guy here. With Kevin Bacon in the role, you see him and you're like, okay, that's a guy I should probably keep an eye on my wallet around. Yeah. But he is effusively nice to Frank. And there's a reason why. But he's also just kind of not a super confrontational guy. This Jacques character, which ends up being funny, but anyway, yeah. So so Jacques invites himself in for eggs and is very effusively kind to Frank about the eggs. And Frank's like, I don't know what the fuck you're doing here, man. I'll tell Sarah next time I see her that you stopped by, but probably gonna be a minute. And it's like
1: five days later, she was gone. There's already a lot in this movie about Rain Wilson's character where he lets this person that he doesn't know into his house because the guy notices he's making breakfast. He lets him come in and has breakfast with him. Like, just no one would have had this response to a stranger showing up at your house asking for your wife and then inviting themselves in for breakfast. Everything about him is just like, you kind of get that Frank just kind of lets people walk over him.
2: Yeah, he's very much a doormat, but... I also have a thing about that once we get to the analysis section. Generally a trusting and idealistic person. To a fault. Yeah. Uh, so five days later, she's gone. All her shit is gone. And so he kind of goes looking for her.
0: He is sobbing in front of a mirror. And then we get our opening credits, which are kind of long, but eh,
2: I've seen worse. I feel like they were made to feel a bit longer because they were crudely drawn. Okay, yeah. Yes. The intro sets up pretty well the tone of this movie
0: and the two distinct modes in which this movie operates. It's a crayon drawing like we've seen Frank do, which means it's going to be kind of silly and goofy. It's
2: also horribly bloody. And bleak. Very. You can excuse a bloody movie with a lot of jokes in it, but a bloody bleak movie, there's not enough jokes to make that Fun.
0: So now Frank goes to confront Jacques about
2: the whereabouts of his wife, and he finds Jacques at a strip club. We see him walking out. With an extremely wasted Sarah. Sarah's not here yet. Oh, she's not? That's the next time. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you're, you're absolutely correct. Okay. So Jacques's got several big goons with him, including Sean Gunn and a few other characters that are frequent. And Michael Rucker. Michael Rooker. That's the other one. And so these are not folks you look at and you're like, yeah, I'll fuck with them. Kevin Bacon, like, sure, whatever. He's a skinny guy. So Frank confronts Jacques about where's his wife? Where's his wife? And Jacques is just like, ah, okay, buddy, I got some bad news. You're not going to want to hear this. He's generally very, very nice about it. As nice as you can be when... You tell somebody that you've drugged and absconded with their wife.
1: Yeah.
0: At work, his coworkers trying to cheer him up
2: in a very crude way. Yeah. He's a line cook. If that kind of like gives you an idea. No hate for line cooks. I used to be a sailor, so like I also don't have like any hate for crude language. Just like I know how that goes. And then he goes to the police. And he goes to the police with nothing. Except a picture of Jacques. Hey, Kyle. Yeah. How does Frank spell Jacques? (laughs) J O C K. (laughs) So as you might've guessed from my name, I do speak some French and this was one of those things I was just like, ah, like it was simultaneously a funny gag and also a minor brain hemorrhage. So the police won't help. That's not shocking. What is surprising is that they are technically right to not help. No crime has been committed. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, no, fortunately, very, very fortunately, a wife leaving you is not a crime.
1: Yeah. Even the way he presents it, it's like, so your wife is missing, but she took all of her clothes and everything. You know, it's it's a very like... So she kidnapped herself. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. Like, the way he presents the whole thing is just like, uh, eh, you're kind of not seeing reality here, you know?
2: Which... Put a pin in that one. <laughs> Nothing the police will
0: do. So he's walking home ish. He's sad. He sees a sign at a pet store. He goes in and gets himself a rabbit. The person working at the pet store is Linda Cardellini, who was in James Gunn's Scooby Doo movies as Velma. This oh, is the only
1: yeah. scene
2: she is in, <laughs> and it barely matters. Yep, I didn't even register it. Doesn't actually get the rabbit because he's afraid he'll screw it up.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh,
2: interesting. Is at the end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's character development, baby. Now for a great scene.
0: He's at home. He's watching TV.
2: For some reason... What's he watching? What's he watching, Kyle? My
0: mom listens to this.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll be that asshole. Hi, Mrs. G. He's watching tentacle porn.
1: He's watching hentai. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, we didn't make the movie. We're just, you know, <laughs> we're just recapping what's in it, so...
2: And by the way... Ms. G, I love you. I would not have said that if it did not matter, but it matters.
0: But he flips the scene to something that is definitely not porn, the All Jesus Network.
2: Are you sure this isn't porn? Because this is shot exactly like a porn. No, that's what I was getting at. (laughs) This was definitely like- Especially
0: the second time we
2: see it. Oh my God. This was definitely like, all right, we got to clear out of here in 20 minutes because the porno is coming back from lunch. Also, this guy is an extra on the porno.
1: <laughs> Anthony, why don't you tell us about this show? So this is where we get our Nathan Fillion. I don't want to say cameo, but you know he he appears a couple of times. And it's this very over the top show where it's kind of like teens struggling with being tempted by the devil, and Nathan Fillion shows up as this like superhero kind of character, but he's very much like, "Hey, Jesus will save us, and we won't fall to like the temptations of the devil." and I mean, when I say the devil, it's James Gunn in the movie. Very much painted up as, like, the devil. It's James Gunn, if you didn't recognize. I was wondering who that was. Yeah, it's him in the movie. Nathan Fillion's very much in his very, like, Superman-esque costume with the cape. And I think he has, did he have, like, the mask, like, a Lone Ranger or Robin kind of mask also on? Yeah. On his eyes? The domino. Yeah. 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 And I think he had, like, a, uh, like a crucifix on his chest. Giant yeah. crucifix. Giant crucifix. It's just this very over-the-top. Jesus will save us and everything. And there's these two I don't even want to say kids. These are like adults in their twenties playing
2: pretending play. to be high schoolers.
1: Pretending to be high schoolers. They're clearly not. I mean
2: that happens on TV all the
1: time. Well, yeah, say so not in the way when you see it in a TV show, but in the way that these are clearly grown people, you know? Right.
2: They are clearly fucking each other.
1: And their acting is porn levels <laughs> of
2: acting. Like Right, that's sort of what uh, I meant.
1: Yeah, and there's even like a whole part where like Nathan Fillion says something about, okay, yes, Jesus saves us. And, like, get out of here, devil. And, like, the guy, he's playing the kid in the skit's like, thank you, Jesus. Like, it's just so over-the-top ridiculous. But, of course, Frank's watching all this, and he's getting this inspiration from this that clearly what he's meant to do is become a superhero and set things right in the world.
0: Slight adjustment. So one Nathan Fillion's character is called the Holy Avenger, which is very funny. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he ends the episode by saying... You must fight evil in all its forms. So it's not so much that Frank says, I need to be a superhero. It's just, I need to do the right thing. Right. I need to fight evil. So this is when he goes back to the strip club to find Jacques and Sarah is there.
2: Yes. Okay. So he's been under the impression that Jacques has kidnapped Sarah. He didn't just go to the police and say that. He straightforwardly believes it. Unfortunately, that belief is Hmm. challenged. When he sees Sarah again, because Sarah very clearly messed up in the middle of the day, just problem using, gets in the car, sees Frank, and with all of the capacity of somebody who is just on Olympic quantities of heroin, just tells him to fuck off.
0: Naturally, Frank is still insistent, as that is his wife, and tries to mean mug
2: towards Jacques, and Jacques just doesn't care. Jacques is still being very, very nice. And in fact, he gets out and is just like, all right, haven't I been nice to you? Have I not been nice to you? You need to go now. Don't touch my car again. And Frank is just like, boop. It's like, it's clearly not what I meant. I'm, I'm going now. And then he gets his ass kicked by the boys. So this traumatic brain injury jump cut to Frank's bedroom where he's just absolutely beaten to hell. And his traumatic brain injury... And spoiler alert, underlying mental illness manifests in just the wildest visual and auditory hallucination. I mentioned the tentacle porn and I had to mention the tentacle porn because part of this hallucination is this man gets brain fucked by a tentacle, by several tentacles.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a strange scene where it's like he's sitting there and it's almost like the tentacles are coming from like out of the other sides of the screen from both sides. Literally, it's like the top of his head is removed. And I feel like at one point, a tentacle has like a sponge or something. It just brushes across his brain.
2: Well, it splooges on his brain first and then rubs it in. Yeah. As you do. I'm so sorry about this. (laughs) (laughs) This is disgusting. And it just, this part doesn't matter. This is entirely, you're lucky. I didn't even talk about James Gunn eating invisible (laughs) pussy in this show. Yeah. I let that out because I'm a respectful human being.
0: (laughs) While this is going on, we also hear some inner thoughts from Frank. He's like, I've always had visions and it's very like religious visions.
1: Mm, Yeah. Like he feels like God is talking directly to him in a
2: way. And also that just random people that he may or may not have negative interactions or impressions of become demons. Yeah. So that's schizophrenia. think like we could just firmly say that. Frank is a schizophrenic, which means this is a horror movie and a bad horror movie at that. Because schizophrenics are almost entirely not a dangerous group of people.
0: They don't lean on the schizophrenic aspects that much. So you almost forget sometimes.
2: Yeah, just occasionally, like, you have to kind of remember that this is all due to a combination of schizophrenia and one gigantic ass whooping
1: it clearly has his own version of reality that is not lining up to what is really happening it's kind of the way he perceives things only he perceives them that way mm-hmm. and in a strange way kevin bacon's messed up drug dealer criminal character almost can see this guy is not seeing things the way they really are and in his strange messed up way he's trying to give the guy leeway of like clearly you have other issues going on trying to be nice to him as an I don't need to deal with this. Maybe you should go off and I'm trying not to beat the crap out of you because you clearly have enough things to deal with.
0: So in this vision, his
1: brain is
0: literally touched by the finger of God and he talks to Nathan and Holy Avenger, and he gets divinely inspired by this drawing and he doesn't really know what it is, but he immediately draws it as reference. Fingered by God. Yeah. We should all be so lucky. Hmm. You know what? I'm going to pass. Cool. After this, he hangs like printer paper on his walls that say some of his children are chosen. I bring this up because I watched this with my girlfriend and she was so annoyed that he hung it up such that it went around a corner.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) There was clearly enough room on the wall. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) What? Why the? Why the? I feel like there's an economy. A visual metaphor within film. I just, why did you do that, James Conn? <laughs> <laughs> Frank then, I don't know if this is what inspires him, but he goes to a comic shop? Yeah, he wants to learn more about the Holy Avenger. I That's think what it, it is. is.
1: Yes. This is when we meet Libby, Elliot Page's character, in the shop because Frank starts specifically looking for comics about heroes that don't have powers.
0: Later, later. That's the second visit. The first one is. I want Holy Avenger comics.
2: Right. Kind of contextualized his visions. There you go. And Libby is... Derisive. Oh, boy. There's more to it than that. Like, it's... Libby is constantly in just a manic state and doesn't have real good impulse control. Even in this very banal interaction where they're just at a comic book shop that Libby works at. Just derisive,
1: rude, off-putting, unfiltered, raw. Yeah, Libby holds nothing back in words or actions. And she's reading some of the things, and
0: one line from the book stands out, saying, like, you just gotta do good, and that is the one piece she agrees with. Libby says, why hasn't anyone just become a superhero? Well, this movie will tell us why, but... (laughs) Foreshadowing is a literary device. Exactly. <laughs> From that conversation, Frank realizes that the thing he saw in his vision was a
2: helmet mask of sorts mm-hmm. and that he should become a vigilante. And he does the healthiest thing that he does in the entire movie in this moment when he realizes that the symbol was actually a mask. He takes his wedding picture, rips Sarah out of it. And that was the healthy part. Yeah. The rest of this is patently unhealthy. And then he tapes his helmet over it. Unhealthy. It's not going to get better from here, folks. He becomes
0: the Crimson Bolt, and we see the Crimson Bolt hanging out behind a dumpster waiting for crime to happen. It's very boring.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Insofar as vigilantism done legally and well yields results, that's just what it looks like. It's people who hang out in places where crime is known to happen and details everything, and reports that to police so they can action it. Action in heavy air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Good chance that the person you're reporting it to is on the
1: take, but, you know, what you gonna do? You know my first thought with this? The minute he becomes a Crimson Bolt, this is the same guy that let Kevin Bacon just walk into his kitchen, sit and eat food with him, didn't protest too much, but as soon as he puts this mask and costume on, he is now out looking for confrontation. Like it's like that switch flips where he is a different person now and he is looking for someone to mix it up with, you know, even though he's sitting by a, a dumpster, he is now actively seeking confrontation or before he just let a stranger walk into his house mm. without a hesitation, just kind of gave up, you know, his personal space. And now he's out in the public looking for a confrontation. Like he really does become a whole different person as a Crimson Bolt in a way.
2: Hmm. I have a really good friend who has a plural condition, so that might be somebody I could have talked to about this to get a little more insight. But through my interactions with femme, I know one of fair personalities is more aggressively protective, mm-hmm. but not looking for violence. Aggressive. I don't yeah. know that that's a thing.
0: So because this is so boring. How does Frank find out where crime
2: is happening? So Frank goes to the library. Shout out to libraries. I love libraries. (laughs) Love a library. Yes. And then, all right, Frank kind of intuits the need for anonymity when one is a masked crime fighter. Understands the concept of why you wear a mask. Kind of doesn't grasp why you wear a helmet underneath the mask, but we're getting there. (laughs) Don't worry. So he wears a fake beard that is peeling (laughs) off at the corners to the library. And the librarian reads him for filth and is just like, that's clearly a fake beard. What do you want? And he says he's a student who is writing an essay on crime. Where to find drugs. Yeah, where to find drugs. (laughs) Somebody purporting to be a college student. I'm writing an essay on where to find drugs. Okay, you're a narc. You jump street,
1: yeah it's it's for science i swear <laughs> where do i find the drugs <laughs> for research purposes also this beard isn't fake people all the time make that common misconception it's totally <laughs> weird. it's a thing he tells the librarian <laughs> why
2: just it's fine everybody's just like clearly it's fake no one cares just move <laughs> on with life and he's like no it's, it's it's common misconception it's actually very
0: real he finds a drug deal He tackles the dealer, but gets his ass
2: beat, and he runs away. Okay. I don't know if this is a thing, but most of the cities I've lived in, there are two streets that you can always count on being a little little rougher than most. And one of them is the one he goes to, Euclid Ave. I don't know what that is. Like, is that a thing I'm not aware of? Literally the day I watched this, I was
0: on the Euclid Ave over in my area, Hmm. and it's, like, one of the bougier areas. Really? Yeah. I mean, there's a nice independent bookstore and a fancy ice cream place and a barcade and all this stuff.
2: Every place I've ever lived in that has had a Euclid Ave that's always been a rough part of town.
1: So, Euclid Street, where I live, and it's not a rough part of town, but it's not very far, like, far from a rough part of town. It's adjacent, so. Hmm. But I didn't even notice that, honestly, when I was watching it. So I didn't even notice that that was the street that they were on.
0: Sophia's been to a lot of places, so she knows. I've lived in some really fucked up places. (laughs) Fair. You can see those connections. I've only lived, like, two places.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Did y'all have the thought that I had at first, even though I'd seen this before, it had been so long? Something about the way this scene is filmed, I almost thought he had made a big mistake because I thought that guy was an undercover cop. I thought the the twist was going to be that he had ruined a sting. For a second, I thought that... They have weird dialogue. Yeah. Yes,
2: everybody in this is very stilted and weird.
1: Yeah, and I thought that guy was going to be like, you just messed up my undercover... That's what I thought was going to happen at first. But no, it's just a real drug dealer. He just beats the, the crap out of him.
2: Well, I mean, I don't know if we would necessarily call that guy a drug dealer because what he ends up giving these college kids is like popsicles. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. On.
1: <laughs> Even another reason why I thought it could have been just like, it was a sting, you know, I don't know. But there was something about it until... I don't know why I thought it was going to end that way, where it's going to be like, this guy just ruined. Either I kind got that vibe too, though.
2: Like That's not nothing. Like I was like, okay, this is extremely weird. Is this just... Okay, I look like somebody you would not sell drugs to, and I've always looked like somebody you would not sell drugs to. I look like a narc. I'm not, mm-hmm. but I look like one. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how drug deals typically go, conversation-wise, but this struck me as weird.
1: Yeah, everything about it just seemed... Well, this whole movie is awkward, but everything about this situation seemed off, even before Frank, like, intervenes in it.
0: He ran away, and he goes back to the comic shop. This is when he says,
2: I need comics about heroes without powers. And so Libby gives him a few examples. Touches on Iron Man, but is like, well, Iron Man wears a super suit, though, so that doesn't really count. Libby has a freak out about Captain America, which I think it is just there to really reinforce that Libby is also unwell, but differently than Frank. Because Libby tells Frank about Captain America, but then is like, no, 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 wait. They made him a super soldier. That doesn't really count. Put that down. Anyway, Frank now has a wrench. Yep. Good old pipe wrench. Very heavy. We'll do the job. Classic from Clue. It is a murder weapon.
0: We go back to that drug deal and, uh uh-oh, right in the dome.
2: (sighs) Okay. All right. So this movie is extremely gory, and this is not even close to the goriest scene. But whenever Frank domes somebody with this fucking wrench, it leaves a visible impression. And, like, I feel like there is a convention in especially violent movies where you can just cut away from that. I don't need to see... This dude's skull cave in. Yep, but I did.
1: Yeah, James Gunn does not cut away from the violence in this movie.
0: Montage time. Frank is doing physical training. He's also fighting a lot of crime. He has a catchphrase: "Shut up, crime." <laughs> That's our opening. And so many of these scenes now are then punctuated with goofy comic book effects. So, like the paper cutout type of like explosiony thing,
1: like Adam West Batman.
0: Yes,
2: exactly. Pow, zap. Yeah. Quazam. Yeah, it pops
1: up on screen. Very much like that. But much more violent. Huge tonal dissonance. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But that's the reality of, like, if Batman were real, he would be stacking bodies. Like, this is what it would look like.
0: Frank does a stakeout to find Sarah. It's at this strip club. Jacques is not there, but Michael Rooker has Sarah. and. Then we go into a flashback.
2: Is this where he meets Sarah? Yep. I guess she was a waitress at the diner where he worked. Yeah. So this was her first job out of, like, hardcore intensive inpatient rehab. And she's trying to get clean. She's in a delicate place. And Frank is weird, but listens in a way that does not give you the impression that he's psychoanalyzing you, which, after the six months that Sarah's had, probably feels good. So then they make out and both are crying. It's very uncomfortable. It's deeply uncomfortable. Fellas, there's a difference, right, between good romantic sex, which might bring a tear to your eye, and sex in which one party is sobbing. Now, to be fair, Frank is also sobbing. <laughs> Neither of these are good things. No. You should stop and work that out. Yeah. Just red flags all over the place. I think they're crimson flags. They're crimson
0: flags? Ah. Uh. <laughs> oh, no, those flags were made with a crimson bolt of fabric. Oh
2: Not there. Oh. <laughs> Shut up, crime. But, uh, <laughs> God. Okay. Anyway, yes, that's my dating advice with Aunt Sophia. If one partner in your sexual encounter is crying, please stop.
0: Frank follows them back to Jacques. They call it a ranch later. Throughout my notes, I called it a compound.
2: Yes. It's both. Porque los dos. Exactly.
0: Not much happens here. He just knows that it exists.
2: Yeah, so he's, he's found Jacques' secret lair. And as you would want if you were a massive drug dealer and like the baddest cat in the whole damn town, you would want a place with flat land, in the middle of a great deal of flat land, so you have really good visibility across 360 degrees of arc, which Jacques has, which makes him more or less, given his army of goons, unassailable. We'll come back to it. (laughs) Yeah. While Frank is at work, there is a news story running about the Crimson Bolt. Okay. I have no poker face. I do not have any place to be judging this. Frank has no poker face. Frank tries to play it off like he has no... Clue, what's happening to his buddy? Did oh, anybody catch the buddy's name?
1: Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes, I'm looking at the cast list. Yeah, Hamilton. Okay,
2: so his buddy Hamilton, just like absolutely reason for filth. I was just like, are you him? You just said you had no idea what was going on, and here you are, like asking questions that imply you know what's going on.
1: Also, is the newscast after the scene where Frank loses his shit because someone cuts in line?
2: No, it is
1: before. Okay.
2: At the end of this conversation, Hamilton's like, all right, you're coming to the movies with me and my girlfriend. Get there a little early, grab us a spot in line, get us some tickets, we'll be along. That sets up the no butting in line bit. It's not really a bit. There's no punchline.
1: Well, (laughs) in a way.
2: (laughs) So, gets his
0: tickets, goes, waits in line, and then there's a guy who walks up and starts chatting up a lady who's further ahead basically cutting in line. And a lot of people are annoyed,
2: but Frank's the only one who bothers to say something. Because Frank's found his power in the Crimson Bolt.
1: Also, there's a ton of people in this line. Like, if you're in a line for, like, a major movie, it's not, like, a few. There's, like, a lot of people in this Mm -hmm. public space. Lots of
2: witnesses. So the guy tells Frank to fuck gently off into that good night. And Frank's like, all right. And fucks gently off to his car, where we get just a full moon from Rain Wilson while he's changing into his Crimson Bolt costume. Comes back and brains the guy. Again, did not need to see his skull cave in. Thank you, James Gunn. And then the woman the guy was talking to was like, why
0: did you do that? And you know what? She catches a wrench to the face as well. Just does it in broad
1: daylight in front of a line full of people.
2: And the guy, the guy literally said, dude, I just
1: saw you go to your car. What are you doing? (laughs) Because his car is just parked like right across the street. You know, it's not like he even went around a building. It's just right over there. Subtlety is not Frank's strength at all. No. He really believes that his changing his car is somehow masking him from everyone noticing that the crimson bolt has appeared. Not that this guy just went to his car and showed up in this costume with the wrench in hand.
2: And that he doesn't look very similar to Rain Wilson occupies the same silhouette of the guy who just left the line
1: come on man and then also every time he does something like this he jumps in his actual car drives away doesn't have his license plate he doesn't have a crimson bolt mobile he's just driving his regular ass car everywhere he goes so he does that leaves i think he throws a suit away thinking he's gonna give up being the bolt not quite yet okay
0: two things happen first one Libby comes by the diner For some reason, I don't remember, but she's convinced Frank is the Crimson Bolt. She is correct, of course.
1: Well, because I think there was a news story after the incident at the movies. Because the newscaster mentions Crimson Bolt attacks two people, like send them to the hospital with concussions or something. And then I think Libby saw that news broadcast.
0: She also invites him to a party she's throwing at her apartment. The other thing, which is what freaks out Frank, is that the police come to visit. It turns out that he just had to sign some paperwork because he had made a claim earlier and they kind of need to resolve it, that it was nothing, paper, bureaucracy. But Frank is immediately so scared of going to prison, he's convinced that they know he is the Crimson Bolt.
2: And here comes the siren. Frank has a delusion wherein he is arrested, tried, convicted, and then butt-raped in jail. And again... There's convention that you can imply this. I don't need to see both parties butt naked and one party thrusting, James, you pussy-eating pervert.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's the end of that. Frank and the police detective, whose name I did not write down, we learned it at some point, have a weird conversation because the officer thinks that it's just a very normal conversation and Frank... Is immediately so suspicious because again no poker face
1: none yeah frank keeps staring at like a door i think behind the officer and the officer's like noticing he's drawing this attention he's like is is there something in there you, you keep looking over like is this a like a basement or something like what do you have in there he's like no no it's just a closet you know and then he's like i, I have a dog in there and the officer's like you keep him in a closet yeah you keep him in a closet well you know i love dogs like why well, don't want him to bite people he's like No, no, I'm good with dogs. He goes, those are the people he bites the most. It's just, he has no right answers. For this scenario, he's manifesting himself because his conscience is making him freak out because he he knows he's been out there hitting people with a wrench.
2: There is a level of street smartness that navigating the real world requires that Frank utterly lacks. He's too earnest for this world, to be honest with you. So after the officer leaves...
0: He prays to God again and says, should I continue doing this or should I give it all up? Ultimately decides to give it up.
2: Yeah, he does the thing that like, it's funny, but it's also a little played out where he's praying. He's like, okay, give me a sign. Any sign, earthquake, anything at all. Just let me know. The Jesus figurine falls off the counter. Anything at all. I am listening. (laughs) Oh, was that an orgasmo? Yes, it was. That's right. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. But this time, there are no signs, so it's whatever. He watches another episode of The Holy Avenger. This one, the villain has spread lust dust, which, not beating those basically porno allegations.
2: <laughs> James, you filthy son of a bitch, just quitting that pussy for a minute and talk to me, James. <laughs> Holy Avenger says...
0: Remember not to ignore what Jesus has sent you to do or whatever.
2: And Frank's like, ah, shit, I do need to be the Crimson Bolt. So there's something here to be said about the effect of religious propaganda on the mentally unwell or the mentally vulnerable, I should say. It extends well beyond people who are like diagnosably mentally ill. It's also people who are alone and lonely and just filling the void with propaganda. (laughs) It's very impressionable. Yeah. Impressionable. That was the fucking word I was looking for. Thank you.
0: No problem. <laughs> so as part of this, he decides to make a run at Jacques' compound, mostly to get Sarah back. Uh, yeah. He's not expecting anything else. He does this in broad daylight, as you do. Well, it turns out Jacques is not quite as gooned up. No, that's not the right phrase. It kind of is for this movie. <laughs> it is. Does not have as many goons as you might expect.
2: Rolling a little more shallow
0: than usual. So they don't notice him is basically what I'm getting at.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you also don't necessarily want armed patrols on your front lawn unless you're telling people, hey, some shit I desperately don't want people to know about is happening in here.
1: He also doesn't expect that this guy's going to just roll up to his window. And then after he sees them in the window doing drugs with Sarah because he works on impulse, just smashes the window. And the henchmen do what henchmen are going to do, and they pull guns on him. And at this point, I feel like the real world comes crashing on Frank because Frank, I figured, had not considered, oh, they might have guns. Hadn't thought about that. Also, they might
2: recognize me by name.
1: Yeah. Because I think one of the guys says that's Sarah's husband. I think he says that. Mm-hmm.
2: He says, that's Sarah's husband, full name. Yeah. Yeah. Frank. At that point, you know you're fucked.
0: Yeah. As he's escaping, Frank gets shot in the leg, and as he's driving away, pulls out a flyer for Libby's party. So that's where we will go next.
2: So Libby's party is your typical gathering of youths.
0: Early 20-somethings.
2: Yes. It feels like people are very aggressively trying to have fun, while very aggressively trying to be too cool to have fun. That's the vibe here.
1: My initial thought when this scene started, again, hadn't seen the movie in so long, was that, oh, Libby has a lot of people over. It seems like Libby is the more normal of the two people here. Libby's more social, you know, like the conversations. And Even when Frank shows up in this uh, apartment, wearing what is essentially kind of like a garbage bag kind of fashioned over him to hide all of his bleeding and his wounds.
0: If I may, as Will Ferrell would call it, it's the derelict campaign
1: (laughs) there you go from the zoolander collection the derelict campaign i love it but Libby, even in this moment is just when someone's like hey there's a homeless looking guy at the door named frank asking for you and libby's first response is frank like sincere happiness that like my friend came to my party and
2: libby is full-on about to bang this guy
1: yeah just all of that stops when they realize frank's here And then Frank comes in with, yeah, what looks like just a garbage bag with, like, duct tape wrapped around him. And he is drawing all of the attention in the room.
2: Libby does try to introduce Frank to everybody. And he's just like, yo, we need to talk in private right the fuck now. Anyway, Frank cops to being the Crimson Bolt. And Libby is very impressed with this. Libby allows him to stay in the house. And develops a crush on him. Yep. Also,
0: while this is happening, that police officer finally puts together that Frank is the Crimson Bolt because of a newspaper, goes to his house, but so do Jacques' goons, and the cop gets killed. This won't really matter.
2: The cop does not occupy the same silhouette as Frank does. Like, I don't know how you look at the cop and go, yes, that's Frank. Kill him. That's a, oh shit, random person is already in this person's house. Don't want that to be a cop. Probably ought to get out of here kind of scenario. We'll come back. Also, Sean Gunn's character is kind of dumb. Very, very dumb. So he's like, wait a minute, that's not Frank. And he sees that it's a cop and is like,
1: yo, I was just following orders, man. Also, one of many times in this movie that someone will say that they were not responsible for their actions. Several characters throughout this movie. It happens with almost every major character in this movie. They do something really horrible, and immediately, hey, I was sleepwalking. Hey, I was following orders. Hey, it was a mistake. So many people quickly backpedal, and that wasn't my fault when it clearly was, and that Sean Gunstein is one of them.
0: So, Libby pitches herself as a potential sidekick to Frank, and he begrudgingly agrees. Yeah. She's super excited, and then they're behind a dumpster, and she's so fucking bored That she says, hey, this one guy I know, keyed my friend's car. That's a crime. Let's go make him shut up.
2: And they go. And the guy gets beaten nearly to death. Frank intervenes the last minute to stop Libby. And they have an altercation. They keep using each other's fucking names. And they have a long conversation about all of this on the way back to their secret hideout but first they need gas.
1: Libby is also so violent in beating this guy up which makes the comment later that I think that was the right guy but Libby's also so violent in this moment that Frank there's a shot of Frank watching this and Frank appears to be afraid of Libby as in oh this person's even more dangerous than I am and I think Frank realized in this moment I have opened Pandora's box and I cannot close it back.
2: It was very in this moment I had a vision of Sneeko being confronted by his shithead 12-year-old fans saying, fuck women. What have I done? (laughs) At this gas station, though,
0: Frank's just filling up the
2: car and
0: up pulls Sean Gunn and the third goon who I didn't recognize. The actor doesn't get a name. They're like, oh shit, that's the guy. A fight ensues. They chase Frank while he desperately tries to put on his mask to get some anonymity. Meanwhile, Libby takes Frank's car and drives after them. Right when we think Sean Gunn has Frank on the ropes, Libby slams into him, killing him. Frank takes that guy's gun and shoots the other goon. Two mixed reactions, let's
2: say, from onlookers. That's probably a good way to put that.
1: Another decent crowd of people seeing this all happen in broad daylight. Yeah, why the fuck are they...
2: Everything they do is in broad daylight except for one thing, and it doesn't go but we'll get to it once they get back frank's pissed about how everything went down
0: and there's some quote about like you don't see them getting bored in comic books it's like that's what happens between the panels which leads to this awful pseudo-romantic moment Mm -hmm. don't really have anything else for that yeah nope oh yeah libby hits on frank but frank is still devoted to his wife even this far into the movie yeah i have nothing
1: So then they start to go to a gun range, almost in a way kind of acknowledging that they, I guess, need more training because the people they're up against have guns. Being a hokey gimmick isn't going to fucking cut it?
2: Okay. (laughs) Now we're talking guns. Now we're talking machetes. Now we're talking, like, gadgets and explosives. These fools are off the chain. The one thing I will say is the one thing they get wrong about building a pipe bomb is...
0: Also, while this is happening, there is a news story that public opinion is kind of changed on Crimson Bolt because it turns out that he was beating people with a criminal record. And for the
2: average American, that makes it okay. Really? The guy that cut the line at the movies had a criminal record?
1: I feel like you hear either a kid or a person in one of the scenes saying, but he's only beating up bad people. Like you hear someone say that on screen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Also, you hear one of the people that he helped, like, defending his actions. Oh, that person was also almost raped. And it's like, what is it, James Gunn? Why?
1: It's almost like the natural born killers effect, kind of this exposure and this media focus on them has almost made them like this Bonnie and Clyde, almost like people are kind of rooting for them, even though they're not doing something that they should be doing.
0: The end of the news story is the police sergeant saying, I don't care what he's doing is still illegal. Which he is very yes. correct. Yes, I'm very sorry about this, sirens. <laughs> the next scene is <sighs> Libby rapes Frank.
2: Yeah, let's let's not get into any details. Libby rapes Frank. It is the most uncomfortable scene in the movie. It is, and I don't have anything. Is,
1: just yeah, it is what it is. And then Frank immediately like throws up in the toilet. Which, another weird James Gunn moment that the vomit becomes the image of Sarah. Yeah, that's his hallucination. Yeah. Yeah. And Sarah, in his mind, is still asking Frank to rescue her.
2: Libby immediately apologizes, claiming that Libby was sleepwalking or something like that. And I'm just like, Libby,
1: people normally walk on two feet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No one here taking responsibility for their actions.
0: Frank says, we're raiding the compound tonight. Which,
2: unfortunately, is also the night of a big drug deal for Jacques. So, Libby makes a cogent rebuttal to this. But we're not ready. You are correct. You are not ready. We get a little bit of setup at the
0: compound that there's this guy, Mr. Range, and Jacques has brought over some women to entertain him. There's a lot to not like about this. Yep. But Mr. Range settles
2: his eye on Sarah. (sighs) Sarah's really just there to test the quality of the drugs.
1: Sarah's just there for the drugs. Sarah at this point only cares about the drugs, it seems.
2: Right, but her utility to Jacques is to ensure that the drugs are of the finest quality, and if they're tainted with something, well, she's had enough drugs in her system that she'll probably be okay.
0: Jacques doesn't want to upset Mr. Range, so he... Goes along with it, but also says some misogynistic stuff about relationships and Mm. basically drops Sarah as his squeeze.
2: I know. Let's just go ahead and start those sirens real quick because we also have to talk about the fact that Sarah did not want to go upstairs with Mr. Range and Jacques convinces her question mark. In the movie, there's more of it
0: later. We don't need to talk about it any more than we have. Yeah. So, while that's happening, Crimson Bolt and Bolty, we forgot to say that that's what Libby is going by, but Bolty, sure, are sneaking onto the property and are taking out guards in perhaps the most gruesome ways available to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so Bolty has claws. Wolverine claws. Made the comment, I could have claws like Wolverine where I could rip people's faces off. And Bolty very much does have on the right hand what looks like just the Wolverine claws. On the left hand, what looks like x 23s like Two Claws, if you've seen the uh, movie Logan. But very much, also, all of this is, is in a way reminding me, Elliot Page also was in X-Men movies. Oh, yeah. As Kitty That's Pride.
2: <laughs> right? I completely <laughs> forgot about Something that. Something
1: I'll remember in this moment, but yeah. Uh. Anyway, they get
0: shot, and Frank's bulletproof vest saves him. It still sucks to
2: get shot. Yes. But you don't die. However, a bulletproof vest does not cover one's skull, as, unfortunately, Libby soon
1: learns. Libby dies in a horrible fashion, a horrible graphic fashion.
2: And like the cut didn't have to be that long, James, we settle on the remaining two-thirds of Libby's skull for way too long. So Frank stands up and shouts a sustained yell,
0: and somehow now the guards are not able to hit him. You know how movies go. Yeah, Yeah. stormtrooper syndrome. Exactly. Murder spree continues, this time again with comic book effects.
2: And by the way, this is not a funny thing, but when he chucks these pipe bombs, it is almost like an earnest movie kind of like the guy explodes. Yeah. Like nobody ever gets ragdolled and riddled with shrapnel by these things, they just explode. And it's kind of funny. Like a video game scene. Yeah.
0: As we say, we don't choreograph fight scenes. This is one long extended action scene. So the main things are Mr. Range tries to pull out of the deal because he's spooked by the idea of the Crimson Bolt and Jacques kills him. Mm -hmm. Frank kills all the remaining goons and goes after Jacques. They have a fight where Jacques shoots him twice and Frank sends some sharp metal
2: into Jacques's taint which would probably put you out of commission in about 15 to 20 seconds. That said, that's a hard wrap on everybody. Everybody dies in a gruesome manner, but Michael Rucker's character gets a death of special note in my book for its gruesomeness because he gets the back of his skull bashed in, but you can see the skull like split in the front and I'm just... It's gnarly. Gnarly. I actually, like, I was, like I said, I was watching this with one of my friends and I actually shouted at the screen. I'm like, okay, he's gone. Move on. Jesus. There's also a conversation between Jacques and Frank where Jacques's like, you didn't do
0: this because it's good versus evil. You did this because I got the girl and you didn't type thing. But then Frank talks about almost a strict
2: moral code. He's like, you don't butt in line. You don't attack people. He, You don't sell drugs. Yeah. Which is the thing that he's actually mad about. So neither of these people are wrong, but one of them is kind of a take on the whole, like, we're not so different villain hero dichotomy. Yeah. And then Frank vehemently disagrees, as the hero, big air quotes there, tends to do.
0: I mean, Frank's big problem here is that he apparently sees all transgressions as equally transgressive. Yeah. And therefore... Deserving of equal punishment.
2: Boy, wonder what could have done that, all Jesus network. I have some shitty things to say in the analysis. (laughs) So
0: they finally come home. We get a little wrap up that Sarah ends up leaving Frank a few months later. He speculates she only stayed with him out of a sense of obligation. But after that, she gets her life together, gets married, has four kids.
2: And a very nice husband that Frank is just like, yeah, that's the thing that happened, and I'm fine with it because Sarah's okay.
1: And then Frank goes back and adopts that pet rabbit and yeah. starts to have more moments that he cherishes, more than those two that he had at the beginning of the, of the story.
0: And a lot of them are just him being a good person in the community and helping in very mundane ways.
2: Yeah, From a good uncle to his ex-wife's kids. And
0: that is... Roll credits. Roll credits. Anthony, what would you like to say about this movie?
1: This movie is my least favorite of the James Gunn movies I've seen. There's so many things he's probably saying here, but I just feel like there's so many times watching this movie, I was just like, what, what are we doing? What's the point of this? But I remember James Gunn has a, a background starting making films for Trauma. I feel like that's where like a lot of the gore and over-the-top things come from, is that shock value. But with this movie in particular, I feel like, is this here just for shock value? Is there a me- or, or more of a message here? I feel like it's, I don't know, it's just really hard to watch characters that are so disturbed, disturbing and unlikable. There's no one to root for, I feel like, in this movie. There's no one that, like, I kind of just want everyone to stop what they're doing <laughs> and take a step back. It's just a very hard movie to watch. It's not a movie that I could recommend either. And I feel like this movie also, this movie coming out in 2010, right around the time the kick-ass started, in the earliest phase of the MCU. At this time, the MCU was like maybe three, four movies in. I feel like this movie... Is not really about the superhero genre. It just kind of would have happened no matter whether those movies were taking place or not. I just feel that James Gunn would have told this story anyway. I don't know. It's just a very weird and, and bizarre movie. There's very few movies I've seen that I've got a, a wide taste. I, I'll see something that's strange, that's bizarre, disturbing. But there's very few times I'll see a movie like this and just kind of wonder, well, what's the point of some of this? And just have no interest in wanting to watch it ever again. And it just still shocks me that this movie was made in 2010. And that Disney hired him to make Guardians of the Galaxy, not even four years later. And I'm not saying he should not have gotten that job, because clearly he did great. Everything he's made since then. I mean, the guy's got range. And one trademark of his in this also, by the way, is he has a great ear for music. A lot of great needle drops throughout this, which is kind of a James Gunn trademark. I just want to know how he somehow got that job after this was put out. Because, man, someone was taking a real risk with him. But he, I mean, hey, the guy's, he's, he's an interesting writer and director. I just feel like this of the things I've seen of his is my least favorite of anything he's done.
2: The answer to your question, Anthony is sliver slither Mm -hmm. happened. And I recall when that came out, that was something that people talked about and there were a lot of critical reviews about it that were really positive. Mm -hmm. Everybody thought it was this, you know, new way of exploring a genre. And so I imagine that this kind of like slid past because It is functionally a Dollar General kick-ass. Yeah. And so people remembered kick-ass for being this ultra-violent, schlubby dude with psychotic sidekick movie about not superheroes. And then with that kind of negated by the fact that somebody else did it better, uh, people remembered Slither.
0: It's funny we keep bringing up kick-ass because while they do get at the same thing, it's interesting how the two main characters differ in their approach both have an idealism and it's very clear that super's idealism frank's idealism is informed through a very particular kind of morality as we see a very christian morality mm-hmm. whereas Kickass is because he's a teenager it's a little more childlike naivete idealism yeah which also, then contrasts really well with Nick Cage's character, who I believe in the movie is a former cop who like, saw that the cops were not effective at doing what he thought was justice. Yeah,
1: he's Batman with guns.
0: Yes. Kyle? Yes. I do have one short point and one longer discussion point. The first is that the end monologue from Frank reminded me of a very Jewish idea. In it, he talks about how the four kids that Sarah has may not have been born if he had not gone to the compound that night. There is a saying that roughly translates as, if you save a life, you save a world. And conversely, if you destroy a life, you destroy a world. That kind of plays out here, <laughs> is he saved Sarah's life and so many things were able to happen because of that. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't see all the stuff that happened because of the people he killed.
2: Therein lies the flip of that coin. Yep. How do you do only objective, uncontroversial good?
0: But maybe the world that got destroyed was one of negativity, generally speaking.
2: Hmm. I'm
0: not about to argue that ethic at the moment, but that leads directly into the ethics of vigilantes. A lot of superhero media has to grapple with this. and. Some of it kind of forgets, such as Marvel's Spider-Man for PS4 (laughs) forgets that Spider-Man is in fact a vigilante and it's less likely that he would work directly with the police. So what do we think this movie says about the ethics of vigilantism?
2: It is the preoccupation of the psychotic is what it's, it's screaming. But it's also saying to me that... It's also the preoccupation of the wronged person with no possibility of redress. Sure. I think we see that in
0: the interviews the second time they do a news story in that the people he helped are very grateful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. However, it definitely seems like this movie overall thinks that it's a bad idea. Yeah. The only time it seems at all good
2: is the final attack on shock. And even then. At what cost? Exactly. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that, about vigilantism generally.
0: And I think the ending kind of reinforces that idea that vigilantism is not the way to go because his good moments are then just like, he was nice to someone who had a bad day at work. And that made it a little better.
1: I feel like his best moment should be, I didn't go to jail. (laughs) like Because that was a thought I had at the end of the movie. I was surprised he didn't get arrested. Who's going to press charges? They were all dead. Fair. Yeah, fair. I guess what's thinking about all the times he was assaulting people in front of large crowds of people in the daytime. <laughs> the state. The answer to that question is the state would
2: press charges. Yes.
0: I think that covers my, like, analysis and discussion sort of things. I do have two other points. Go for it. One, this movie has wild tonal swings. Yes. I think that's kind of intentional towards the reality of what this would look like is It's a guy wearing a weird costume, and that's silly, but he's also uninhibited, and that's dangerous. Yes. So it makes for a weird viewing experience, but I think it is intentional.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it is very intentionally weird. The other point is that apparently
0: this movie takes place in an ideal world where killing a cop doesn't have any consequences.
2: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You bleeped my pipe bomb shit. <laughs> and then looked that in? Coward! <laughs> All right, someone else go. Okay, so I have some stuff here. First off, I think we can agree that this is a horror movie.
1: Yes. But
2: not... So we've seen movies like... Oh, I think I name-dropped 13 Ghosts earlier. You did. Oh, that's actually a really good example. Or not 13 Ghosts, no. Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods ends... With the ultimate horror happening, and, you know, the entire point of the movie was don't let the ultimate horror happen and then it happens. This movie was not that. The horror was stopped. The ultimate horror would have been Frank's final narration being, yep, and I'm still doing it to this day. That would have been just, ah, damn it. This movie is now, it's just like, it was awful before. Now it's real bad. Yeah. So it's a horror movie, but it's not ultimate horror. I will say there is a thing, I think, with the very weird sexuality of this movie. Sex and death have long been kind of intertwined in popular media. It's just a thing we know about media as far back as you can imagine. It's just a thing.
1: Especially in horror movies. To do
0: a weird diversion, we're talking about... Superheroes, kind of. Mm-hmm. Sex and death would have made Infinity War better because that was Thanos's original goal.
2: That's right. He was trying to clap God cheeks.
0: <laughs> he wanted to kill so many people that he
2: impressed the embodiment of death, and it didn't work. Still, a
0: better motivation than ecofascism.
2: That's true. Although, well, actually, that's not even. I was going to say that, like, ecofascism is a more present danger in our society than death cults but that's not true is it no anyway speaking of we need to talk about i kind of mentioned the idea of the televangelist propaganda and its effect on the extremely vulnerable who consume it because there's really nothing else going on in the middle of the day on tv or they are primed because of their upbringing To consume that, this is a huge problem in just the world in general. And fortunately, fortunately, most of it does not convince people to become masked vigilantes and beat line cutters to death. Good news there. Bad news is it does convince grandma to give away her mortgage payment on the hope that God does a cool bro move. So, Fuck you, Joel Olstein, specifically at me. <laughs> Go ahead. So there's kind of a meta narrative that I want to talk about here. This is my last point. This is something I noticed. I was watching this with a friend and I was taken because she said something that was kind of like she mentioned that this was just a parade of horrors and every scene was more uncomfortable than the last. And that got me thinking, as it does, about the Frankfurt School. It's my Roman Empire. Okay. So we've talked about this on the pod before, but we haven't talked about it in a while. The Frankfurt School were a group of primarily Jewish philosophers who left Europe after the Second World War, or well, during the Second World War, and came to America. And their preoccupation was how do you take a culture as progressive as the parts of Weimar Germany that we remember were and in the space of a decade, make them Nazis okay with genocide? And the answer is, well, you don't try to make them okay with genocide. You try to make that a necessity. Like that's an unfortunate thing that we don't talk about, but it is necessary. But also you have to do that by degrees. You say something that's a little uncomfortable and you wait till people get comfortable with it. And then you say something that's a little more uncomfortable You wait till people get used to it and you just keep breadcrumbing an entire society into death camps and into turning in your Jewish neighbors. And this is the idea behind the culture industry, a famous work from the Frankfurt School, Adorno et al. And aesthetic theory touches on this a lot. Also, Adorno, I think Horkheimer or maybe Benjamin had more to do with that. But the concept is you use mass media like this movie to introduce uncomfortable ideas and make those mainstream so that the next time you can lay the next breadcrumb and eventually that's how you can like mainstream truly horrendous ideas like i didn't want to see that many rape scenes and each one was i don't know the middle one seemed a lot worse than the last one but the last one was pretty gnarly too but yeah like you build up that each scene is worse than the next and that primes you for what somebody is going to say next. And I think it was an interesting play on that concept because she was right. Every scene in this movie was more upsetting than the scene before it. (sighs) You want to do ratings?
0: I guess that leaves ratings,
2: yeah. Ratings!
0: On a scale of 1 to 10 of enjoyability, just a normal 1 to 10 scale, Anthony,
1: where would you put this? Enjoyability, I'd say like a 2. Because the movie itself... I'm not saying it's a poorly made film James Gunn did what he was trying to do, but it is very awkward and disturbing to watch. And as for someone, who, again, I I can watch things with violence and things, but sexual assault is a thing that in the movie, and I'm speaking as a a straight man here, but any scenes of that in any movie always disturb me more than anyone getting shot or whatever. I mean, stuff like that's enough for me to be like, I don't have to ever watch this again, let alone have three instances of those in a film. But just the movie overall, it's very uncomfortable. For as unusual as it is, I feel like the content around it makes it not an enjoyable watch. Not even really to just discuss as a film. I would say if you feel like you just want to see all of James Gunn's work in your completionist, there you go. Other than that, I feel like I could not even find a reason to tell someone to watch this. So I would have to give it a 2 on that aspect. Mm
2: -hmm. I concur. I have nothing to add to that 2. I don't
0: hate this movie. There's a handful of things I really don't like, but man, Nathan Fillion...
1: Stuff. Unfortunately, he didn't
2: get to Nathan Fillion.
1: Yeah. He was hilarious with the hair. I love the hair he had. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love the wig that he was rocking. Completely
2: impractical for a superhero, but...
1: Just Google Nathan Fillion, Holy Avenger. Just, if you don't watch his movie, if you don't feel... Just Google image search that.
2: And then Google search James Gunn, Holy Avenger. (laughs) Yes. So I'm putting this
0: at like a six and a half. It's shockingly higher (laughs) than you guys... Yeah. What? I'm messed up in the head. I should <laughs> tattoo damaged on my forehead. <laughs> oh my God. Oh no. James Gunn fixed that one too. He said, You're not going to be in this one. <laughs> anyway, on Obscurity, with one being a Best Picture nominee, 10 being a literal student film, how obscure do we think this is?
1: I would say this is a four on Obscurity because I was only made aware of the movie when it first came out because I feel like I think Rain Wilson was doing interviews at the time. And I was listening to a podcast that I think he was on at the time promoting the movie. And if I had not been deep into like movies and movie podcasts, I don't think I would have been aware of it because it was like an IFC production. It wasn't even like huge release film. I think that's the only reason it was even on my radar. I think if not, it would be one of those things where I, I might have found it years later just by a mistake. So I would say unless you're kind of a real person who looks for films, you're not just going to stumble upon this like randomly. So I'd say maybe a three or four.
0: Yeah, I was going to say probably about a three and a half. I mean, Rain Wilson was still in his office fame. Elliot Page has been famous well before this, especially because of Juno. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon's Kevin Bacon. And <laughs> yeah. also, I feel like I remember seeing this, particularly on early days of Netflix streaming, like scrolling through, and it'd be in like a handful of categories you couldn't scroll, or at least you can scroll like action or superhero stuff without
2: seeing it. Yeah. So... I'm going to diverge here. Go ahead. I'm going to say like a seven. And yeah, it had huge star power, but it also suffered from kick-ass being very functionally similar and coming out about the same time.
1: Yeah.
0: That makes sense. As we wrap up our episode, we end with our pop culture pop-out a piece of pop culture we've been interested in lately and just want to talk about for a little bit. Anthony, as our guest, why don't you start us off?
1: I just saw Godzilla Minus One. I want to say this. Whether you have interest in kaiju movies or not, I will say if you do have interest in kaiju movies, Godzilla movies, things like that, you're going to enjoy this movie. Just going to get that out there. What I like so much about this movie, there's several things this movie did that I've never seen in another Godzilla movie or another kaiju film anything. I have never cared so much about the humans in a kaiju movie. The people are a large part of the focus of the story, and you actually care about them. There's something about the way this movie is set as a period piece, and a story with characters you actually care about. To contrast the other side of that, I've also never been more afraid of Godzilla in a movie. This is presented in a very realistic way, as in, what if this really was happening? You know, not like the spectacle of, here's Godzilla tearing stuff up, but like, no, no, no. What if you were on the ground in a city and you look up and you see this in your city? It is treated as like a real, like a natural disaster kind of film. It is not hokey sci-fi. So I've never been more concerned about the people in a kaiju film. I've never been more terrified of a kaiju before this movie. And in the theater I saw it in, which was nearly sold out, I have never seen a Godzilla film where people were audibly crying at the end of it. Hmm. It's a great movie. Just overall, it's just a great movie. And when Godzilla is on screen, they make it count. The effects are amazing. It's just so unique for what this is. Could have been just another genre movie. It's so unique for what it is. If you're even the slightest bit interested, I feel like I'm hyping it up too much. But if you're even a little curious, go see this movie. So I've got a couple
2: of questions about it. Is this the kind of movie that you need to be familiar with other Godzilla properties to comprehend?
1: Not at all. This movie is kind of like a self-contained story. If you've never seen a Godzilla film, this could be a great first one. It treats it as if, say, maybe this was like the first Godzilla story. I almost feel like this is a movie like the very first filmmakers in the 50s. If they saw it now, kind of be like, yeah, this is kind of what we wanted to make. If we had better effects and better technology. I almost feel like if the 50s crew could have made this film, they would have been very happy with this film. Because it gets across all the things behind Godzilla about the nuclear war, World War II and everything. It's all there because this is a Japanese-made Godzilla. But it has the real heart and real honest discussions about the people affected by the war and how their lives have moved on after that. And it treats Godzilla as not a thing to behold and be impressed by, but a thing to be feared and terrified of. So I would highly recommend Godzilla Minus One.
2: Sounds like if Cloverfield was a good movie.
1: Yes. Okay. You know what? Yes. No shaky cam. Love that. Honestly, this might be the quickest they've shown Godzilla on screen in the film. I want to say within the first five minutes, you see Godzilla. Within the first five minutes. Okay. But it's so much more than I expected. It's not just a throwaway genre movie. It's really well done, just across the board.
2: Okay. Cool, 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 cool. Kyle, what you got for us?
0: A few weeks ago, I watched the Netflix, what should be categorized as a limited series, I don't know if they actually did, show The Fall of the House of Usher. This is the newest production from Mike Flanagan, who I am not that familiar with, but I know he makes great TV. And there's one particular actor that I really like that he casts frequently. This is the story of a family that owns a massive pharmaceutical company. They are under lawsuit and unrelated to that, all of the children start dying in creepy ways. Mm -hmm. And so this show takes place across three timelines. One is the patriarch in the present day telling the story to a police detective. Another timeline is the two weeks prior to the present day, which is where his children are dying. And the third is like 30 or 40 years in the past about him as a fresh blood to this pharmaceutical company and how he gets to be where he is. Hmm. If you're not familiar, The Fall of the House of Usher is the name of an Edgar Allan Poe short story. And all of the episodes are also titled after Poe stories. If you know them, you can kind of get some references. It's very cool. It's creepy. There's a couple of jump scares, but it's more just
2: tense. And it was
0: truly fantastic.
2: I'm excited. Yeah. Sophia, what do you have? So, my boy, H Guy released a new video last night. Or, might have been day before yesterday. It's 4 hours long and it's on the subject of plagiarism and plagiarism's place in YouTube culture and its relation to content mill accounts which are more common than you might think and especially if you're in queer and left YouTube circles you follow creators in those spaces It might be uncomfortable to see some people that you recognize. I'm not going to give the game away. It is a fantastic watch and yes, it is four hours long and yes, it is very grim and depressing, but a lot of people that you might know and whose content you might enjoy might have been plagiarizing basically everything they've done wholesale and I mean brazen kind of plagiarism, not like Oh, I failed to properly cite a source. Yeah, there is a little bit of that, but like blocks of text, sometimes entire texts just read. And it's it's disappointing, especially for queer and leftist creators. We're supposed to be better than that. Like we're supposed to be cognizant of the fact that the reason that you don't do plagiarism is because somebody who doesn't get paid a lot for their ideas didn't get paid a lot for those ideas. And when you steal it, you are stealing directly from them. It's an uncomfortable subject and it is an uncomfortable watch, but it is very important. It is also entertaining because I mean, H bomber guy can't not be funny. That's just his whole thing. (laughs) But yeah, love my goofy little guy. Weird little guy is a plus in my book. The video is very good. It's also like good. Just, Background noise that you can zoom in and out of because, again, it's four hours long. And that's what I brought this week. Anthony, where can people find you online?
1: You can find me on Twitch, Twitter, on Threads, all the places, usually at Bruce Wayne Brady, where I talk about movies quite a bit, actually, uh, video games and music and just pop culture stuff in general. So, yeah, pretty much uh, Bruce Wayne Brady in most places.
2: Sophia? Oh, I got a link tree. Big hits are. I don't really fuck with X anymore. That's basically a Nazi nest, and I'm done with it. But insofar as I do still yell at people falling for obvious propaganda there, Hamilcarina, H-A-M-I-L-C-A-R-E-N-I-N-A. You can find me more active on Threads, where I am Sophia H underscore M-D-T. That's also my Instagram handle, because that's how Threads works. I have a medium, Sophia Elena Mace there you'll find Queering House. That's my queer media analysis project. Still working on that Vanitas piece. And you'll also find the fifth columnist, which is my rogue political opinions not affiliated with my employer. Don't find me on Facebook. Kyle, where can people find you?
0: I'm on Tumblr, Letterboxd, and Twitch under Hebrew Hammer. We also have both a Twitter account and a Threads account. I believe both are at off no Twitter is at off the film path. Threads is at at OTFP pod. Thank you. Where Twitter, I tweet about movies generally. Threads, it's me. Sophia on Threads does her live reacts. If you'd like, there is a link at the bottom of our show notes where you can leave a voice message to appear in an upcoming episode. Whether to leave your own pop culture pop out or talk about the movies we talk about. But in order to get in on the next
2: one, Sophia, what are we watching? Next time we're going to be watching Mystery Team. It should be better than Super. How much of a cheap ripoff of Mystery Men is this going to be?
0: Oh, not at all. Oh, good. It goes in a very, like, mysteries shared, but they're very different genres. It's like kid detective shit. Ah, Wait, is this right, the fine. is this
1: the Donald Glover movie? Yes, it is. Okay, okay, I remember this now, yeah.
0: Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. Tell your friends about our delightful musings. Don't become a superhero with any affiliation to us, please, dear God. <laughs> Shut up, crime.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just like, I don't know, scribble the name of the podcast on the back of a comic book.
0: Sure. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Anthony, for coming on. It's always a delight having you.
1: Thanks for having me. I love talking to you all about movies. This is great. This is fun. And we will catch you next time.
0: Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>